want to play basketball no more. I just want to preach the gospel, right? And so I went off to college. I remember I was hooping in the gym one day. It was in the Oxford gym. And I had no intentions of playing college basketball. Mind you, tryouts for the basketball team had already ended. I went to the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And one of the players saw me playing and was like, hey, have you considered trying out for the basketball team? I said, no, nah, not really, man. Just want to preach the gospel. <laughs> right? That, that's it. I was just telling everybody I came in contact with about Jesus. And so I met two guys on the basketball team who were transferred from a JUCO in Dallas, Dallas, Texas. And they so happened to be believers. And so we locked arms. And the players on the team put a word in for the head coach. Like, yo, we got this brother, Emeka. He's trying to try for the basketball team. So the coach gave me a shot. Right, and after the third practice, the coach hands me a jersey and says, "Welcome to the team." Right, and so that's not. Again, remember the vision and mission of FCA. It's to see the world transformed by Jesus Christ through the influence of athletes and coaches. And so we're preaching the gospel around campus. I remember, you know, once I got on the team, we started a Bible study, and the first Bible study was literally my two teammates and I, the assistant coach and one of our other seniors, teammate, right? And as we continue to preach the gospel on campus, the Bible study continually grows, right? Going from 15 to 30, from 30 to 60, and people are giving their life to the Lord, right? And so fast forward, um, I was a pastoral intern at a church, Shady Grove Presbyterian, Durwood, Maryland, and I was working with the youth group and the young adults group, um, and that summer, they had a camp called FCA Power Camp. And this is how I got introduced to what FCA was about. So the pastors told me that I should go and volunteer. And so I coached, taught kids about Jesus. I was like, wow, like this is, this is amazing, where I can marry my two passions, sports and faith. And I was so moved by the ministry that that same summer, I went ahead and started my own outreach through FCA, where I invited kids from college up into middle school to play pickup basketball, and then during halftime, I'll give a brief devotion and an invitation for people to come to Jesus. And so fast forward, you know, I spent about five years in the public school system teaching middle grades English, working with kids as well, playing basketball after school and coaching. And some of the students that I have now, right, are signing, you know, with universities to play Division One sports, right? And so it's a beautiful thing when we can use athletics and sports, right, as a vehicle to show students that your identity is not wrapped in what you do, but in whose you are, right? And so now, we're starting this chapter in Prince George's County. And again, this is, this is a place where af athletes and professionals are, are breeded, right? Um, for basketball, this is a small fact, for basketball here in Prince George's County, when you look at the percentages out of all the states in America, the top five states that have the highest percentages of people getting recruited to play Division I basketball, number one is Maryland. I think number three is D.C., and then number five is Virginia. And I think you got Houston and another state in there, right? But that will tell you, right, the athletes that we have in this county. And what better way to engage them than with the gospel, right? And so that's, that's essentially what we want to do. If you, if you can go to the second slide. So with that being said, um, we want to be mobilized for the ministry. 
right? We want to be, we want to go into these high schools, we want to go into these universities and middle schools, and again, we want to engage these athletes and these coaches to be disciples of Jesus, so that they too can go and disciple others for Jesus, right? And so, this is my ask, and this is the way in which you guys can help support me. I need to raise eighty-five thousand. Um, my goal is to raise it by May third. Now, 65, I'm going to give you guys a little breakdown of how this has to go about. So 65% has to come in AMPS, which is automatic monthly payments, right? So essentially, I have to raise $4,600 in monthly support. So just hypothetical, just gave three scenarios. Let's say I had 46 supporters who were willing to give $100 a month. That would cover the 65% of the total amount that I have to raise. If I had 31 supporters who were willing to give $150 a month, that would cover the 65% of what I have to raise and so forth. 23 supporters who are willing to give 200 a month, that will cover the 65%. And now the 35% of that, the rest, has to come in one-time donations in a total of 29750 So I ask if you guys would prayerfully consider joining my support team. Um, I have a sign-up sheet out in the foyer by the communion table. You guys, uh, after you know, you go on our break, want to talk or want to sign up so we can schedule an appointment so that we can go into more logistics to what it would look like if you join my support team. And then lastly, can you go to the third slide? So if you guys, this is a QR code to my uh, ministry page, my FCA ministry page. If you go ahead and pull out your phones, this will direct you to where you can donate if you so feel led, and it also shares a bit of my testimony and how I came um, to know the Lord and how I got involved with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So thank you for your time. Just wanted to share that. Again, the sign-up sheet is in the foyer by the communion, and I'm here if you guys want to talk afterwards too. So thank you. How exciting, how exciting, how exciting. So um, one thing uh, that I think we all should Gain is not only an awareness of 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 uh, CFA of FCA, excuse me, um, and Emeka's testimony. But one thing that he said that was very uh, critical for all of us as believers is he found a way to marry his passion um, with his faith, and so we all should be looking for ways to marry our passion with our faith, so that the Lord can use us as well. So uh, we are very excited. Um, please do consider how you can give, and, and also please be praying uh, for Mecca as well. Um, I just wanted to come up, and before we took our break, just greet anyone who may be worshiping with us for the first time. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for worshiping God with us. Um, we're going to take a break in a, in a moment, and during that time, people will greet you in a more personal way. But if this happens to be your first time, would you please raise your hand so that we can thank you, identify you, bless God for you. So we got a little man raising his hands, but he, okay, thank you. <laughs> and we have a young woman raising her hand. 
young man right there. We got a little guy who's been here for a long time who's raising his hand. That's all right. Um, but anyway, we are so glad to have you worship with us this morning. As I said, people will greet you in a more personal way during during our little break in just a moment. And I will come by and say hello as well. With that being said, we are going to take our break. Remember, if you need to talk with the Mecca, he's going to be out in the foyer. Uh, you can also sign up there and uh, Pastor Kurt will call us back to order in about five minutes. Keeps me going. He said it'd be an error. 
All right, if we could have everybody to their seats, please. All right. We can get to our seats. Thank you. That clock is wrong. That clock is slow, but I'm going to go by that clock. And all the minutes I can have. All right, just by a couple minutes. Clock is slow, but we're going to use that clock. That's my clock today. I'm using that one. we got a lot to talk about. All right, so in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And at the end of those six days, God saw that everything that he created was good. There you have it. Sin comes into play. And we are officially at the end of the beginning. So in the beginning, everything was good, and we get a biblical dichotomy that's now established. And by dichotomy, I mean there's the Bible all of a sudden turns into these two distinct attributes after Genesis 3. It's hope and horror. The story of the Bible goes back and forth between hope and horror. God creates everything. It's beautiful. There's hope. Sin comes into the play. They disobey God. And then they're given consequences, some of which play out immediately. And so that hope of the goodness of what God created becomes horror. But immediately after God gives consequences to Satan, Adam, and Eve, we go from horror back to hope. Beginning in Genesis 3, verse 20, here's what the narrator tells us, Moses tells us, after Adam receives his consequences. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God had made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is a scene of hope. Let's make a couple of observations here. First of all, Adam naming his wife Eve, he named her the mother of the living. Now this is, keep in mind, 
that they were told when they bite from the tree, they're going to die. It's not clear how they understood death, if they thought it was immediate or not, but they knew they were going to die. But here he names his wife the mother of all living. This is a sign of hope. It means Adam and Eve understand that we're not going to die and we're going to have children despite our horror in disobeying God. This is hope. But there's also a little bit of disunity here. You see, for many of us in our day and age, we view everything as names. Adam is a formal name to us. But biblically speaking, Adam is not a formal name. Adam just means mankind. It just means mankind. So Eve is a part of mankind and technically would be called Adam. As one flesh, they are both Adam. They're mankind. But now that he names her Eve, she's something different. There's some disunity there. So even though there's hope, there's also a little bit of horror mixed in the fact that now we're not one flesh in the same way. The second observation of hope is that God makes clothing for Adam and Eve with skins. These are presumably animal skins, and this sets in motion something significant. We know that later on in this narrative of the Bible that God's people using animals to atone for their sins seems to begin here. So this is sort of the prototype of God's sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So before anything is even established, here God is, in a sense, making clothes for Adam and Eve. This is a redemptive move. Remember, their first act after biting the fruit was to make fig leaves. God's first act after their judgment for their sin was to undo the fig leaves and provide clothing for them. God is reestablishing the priority of their identity. I provide for you. I provide for you, not you. So even though they were covered, God said, you're not covered enough. You see, when they uncovered, they, was, they were shame. Their covering was due to shame. God's covering is due to redemption. He's reestablishing the priority of the identity. And he's also saying that their works are not sufficient to cover their sin. You can't cover your sin. Your works can't cover your shame, but I can. This is all hope. This is hope. Horror to hope. Another observation of hope is that Adam and Eve being sent out of the garden. Now, many of us see that as a bad thing, and on one level, it is a negative consequence for their disobedience. But if you listen to the logic of why God sent them out, you realize this is actually a statement of hope. Here's what God says. He says, behold, in verse 22, 
The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, make sure you understand, knowing is not mean understanding, but deciding, determining. So when Eve and Adam, before they bit the fruit, God decided what was good and evil. And what was good was you can have everything. What was evil is this one tree. Don't eat from it. Once they bit from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they now decide what it is for themselves apart from God, and they decide it individually. So they're not even one flesh anymore on what's good and what's evil. They have different sinful preferences now. So God says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, some of the way that the phraseology works is not how we talk. So this is an English translation of a different language. So the way we talk, we don't talk like this. So it's kind of like, what does this mean? Why do they say it like that? Because this translation is an essentially literal translation of the original language, but they don't talk the way we do. They don't talk like us. So what God is saying here is we need to get them out of the garden because if they eat from the tree of life in this sinful state, they're going to stay like this forever. So they need to be out so that they don't eat from this tree and will be forever sinful. This is hope. I'm moving you out that way. It's hope. Genesis 3 ends beautifully. Genesis 4, horror. Horror is back. Immediately after we see hope, horror in Genesis 4. Now, what's interesting about Genesis 4 and 5 is, for the most part, it's all genealogy. From Genesis 4.17 to Genesis 5.32, it's largely this person had a son, and his son was this, and his son was, and it's all the names that you and I would never name our children. <laughs> all these names that we just, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Their baby book was crazy back then. It's mostly genealogy. There's a brief moment here and there about Lamech did this, and people were calling on the name of the Lord, but for the most part, there's no narrative. It's just these people had these children and these people had these people, and it's helping you understand how humanity developed until Genesis 6. There's little to no narrative. So all of the narrative that shapes everything we need to know before Noah is in Genesis 4, 1 through 16. And here is where the horror is. Let's read together, just 1 through 12. Genesis 4, 1, and I quote, now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain is a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Somewhere there's a pastor teaching and rebuking people for not smiling all the time because they're like Cain and it means that they're sinning in your life if your face is sad. Don't listen to them. They're false teachers. Come back here. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desired for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, people talk bold to the Lord. Isn't it crazy? Remember when Moses was like, look, I don't want to go talk. I'm not a good speaker. And the Lord got angry and said, all right, man, send your brother Aaron. Isn't that funny how the Lord tolerates that? But you and I can think that he doesn't like us when we do things. That's a, that's a different conversation. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your, brother, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So a natural reading of this text, and by natural, I just mean plain observation. A natural reading of this text is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward, all right? Cain and Abel are presumably the two first two born, but at least they're the first two sons born, presumably. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about everyone born, but it focuses on key people in the story of redemption. People always get caught up in that. Well, what about where these people come from? What about this? And it's like, but that's not the Bible's emphasis. The Bible isn't like, let me tell you about everybody that's born. But it's like, no, let me tell you about the, let me give you the narrative of redemption. The Bible is not a story of everything that happened in the world. It's a story of how God redeemed the world. And this is proven even in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is like this. Verse, chapters 1 to 11 is essentially this story of how the world became wicked and evil and all of that, right? But beginning in verse 12, chapter 12, to verse chapter 50 is all about Abraham and his family. It's not about all these other people that have been created. It's about Abraham, one guy, and his children and how they develop and grow and have a relationship with God. You know how much happened from the time Abraham, but God's not concerned with everything in the world. He wants his people to know this is how I redeemed you. So the Bible is not a book that's going to give you facts and figures and all statements. It's specifically a narrative about redemption. We know from observation that both Cain and Abel have a relationship with God. Cain gave an offering. God gave Abel gave an offering. Both offer sacrifices. We have no idea what the logic was, how they came to that conclusion. But somehow they both knew God exists. We must sacrifice to him to show him our appreciation, our obedience, whatever it was. And so it shows they have a relationship. God is talking to Cain. There's no conversation between God and Abel in this passage. It's God talking to Cain. So they have a relationship with God. It's clear from verse 3 that Abel is the godlier of the two. It's clear. The distinction in the offering is pretty obvious. It says this. In verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. See that difference? The firstborn of his flock. 
He bought the purest, the best. And then he says, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Wasn't talking about weight. He was talking about the beauty and the luxury of all that they are. He said, I'm giving these to God. This is the firstborn. This is going to God. Says Abraham offered a sacrifice. It obviously was not the same as Abel. Cain is angry that God accepts Abel's offering, but not his. We see that in verses five and six. This is all just plain. You can anyone could explain this. You guys could be teaching what I'm saying right now. He's angry that God accepts Abel's offering, but not his. God tells Cain to do right. And he warns that sin is trying to overcome him in verse 7. So you get this dialogue. I love the question, why is your face so sad? Why are you offended? And then we see in 8 through 12, Cain fails, kills Abel, lied to God about it. Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He was the only one with him. I mean, who else was supposed to keep him? Didn't you say, let's go out to the field? He lies about it, and he was punished because of exile because of it. Natural reading of the text. Easily self-explanatory when you read this. My sons could explain these details. But if we process this text supernaturally, there's way more going on here. Way more going on. So let's look at this through the supernatural lens, storyline. Satan has four issues. Four issues that we know from Genesis 3, what God said to him. The first is that he hates Eve. Remember, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. So he hates Eve and by default, women. His second problem is that his seed, his offspring, will be hostile to Eve's and vice versa. It's a problem. His third issue is that Eve's seed is going to undo what he did. That's his third problem. And his fourth, he has no idea when the seed of Eve is coming. He has no idea. This is what we have to remember. Whenever we read these stories, we read them knowing everything that happened. We go into them reading them as done a long time ago. But in the process, in the moment of the story, they have no idea what's going to happen next. God is not revealing his plan. When he says you're going to die, they don't know what that means. When he says this woman's going to give birth to a seed, Satan has no idea what that means. He knows that whatever God says is true. So he's on alert. Oh, you thought you were going to overthrow the kingdom. No, I'm going to give you this kingdom and let, let a human being that you deceived overthrow you. But when is that going to happen? Does he know that that's thousands of years in the future? No. In his mind, whoever she gives birth to is my enemy. That's who I need to get. I think the assumption of Genesis 4 is that Satan is present. I mean, where else would he be? There's no one else in the world as far as we know. And even if they are, there's something about these two that he's keen enough to pick up on. We are... Remember, Satan understands things about God that we don't. He knows how God works, what God says, what that means, and so he knows where to be. I think he's closely watching the 
the he's that are born because he could be the one. He has no idea. He knows that in order to defeat God, he must corrupt or destroy the he that she gives birth to. Cain is her firstborn. Abel's his little brother. It's her secondborn. There are two he's. Which is which? Satan's observing. And he notices Abel, excuse me, is godlier than Cain. The younger is godlier than the older. Jacob, I love, Esau, I hated. The younger will become, it'll make sense later. Satan's observing this. The younger is the godlier. Somehow Satan was able to corrupt Cain. Here's evidence of this. 1 John chapter 3 tells us this, beginning of verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see the identity? Cain is of the evil one. He belongs to Satan. He is a seed of Satan, an offspring of Satan. Jude 1 tells us this, beginning in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to him, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. You see, Cain in the New Testament becomes the prototype for all those who belong to the devil. Cain is the first seed, the first offspring of the serpent. He's literally the devil's son. But Cain is not the only prototype. Genesis 3.15 is often called by theologians the proto-evangelium. And it just means the first gospel. This is what Jesus said, this is what the Lord said to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. They call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Proto means first in time. This is where you, when you hear something, this is a prototype, right? That means the first of its kind. It's proto-evangelium. It's the first gospel. And then we get the consequences between Satan and Eve's offspring. They play out immediately. Cain, the first unrighteous seed of Satan, opposes Abel, the righteous seed of Eve. So there's another proto happening here. Cain killing Abel is the proto-crucifixium. Now, that's not a real word. I made that up, but I'll, well, I'll just read it. 
Proto-evangelium is a real word. Proto-crucifixium, I'm coining. Remember where you heard it first. Trademarking that. Anybody work for the uh, trademark corporation? But it's the proto-crucifixium. Here's what I mean. In seed form, in seed form, Cain killing Abel is Satan bruising the heel of the one that will crush his head. In seed form. So the progressive revelation, remember that. Things start off as one thing and become something else or fulfilled later on. The progressive revelation of Abel's murder, who is righteous, is a type of crucifixion and its implications. You know what the cross is, right? What Jesus' death is, it's the blood of the righteous is shed and the wicked receives grace. Cain kills his brother Abel but he receives grace from God. Keep in mind that Adam is not technically born, but created. Adam was created. He's not born. Cain is the firstborn son of Satan in the flesh. So God will send his son, whom he calls the firstborn, in the flesh, in Jesus. This is the proto-crucifixium. As Satan entered Judas to kill Jesus, Cain, who was of Satan, kills Abel in hope to thwart God's plan. This scene is preparing us for the crucifixion where the wicked kill the righteous, shed his blood, and the wicked receive grace. The problem is, when Satan and Cain killed Abel, it didn't work. And when Satan entered Judas and killed Jesus, it didn't work. It didn't work. But you see the parallel. This scene is deeper than just he kills Abel it's Satan's seed, it's unrighteous, kills the righteous seed, and that leads us all the way up to the crucifixion, where Jesus, the righteous, firstborn son of God in the flesh, is undoing what Cain did. Adam also, obviously, but Cain as well. But this corruption also runs to another level. This corruption accomplishes another kind of destruction. You see, many of us, we look at this and we think Cain kills Abel, and that's true. But if you stop and think about this from the standpoint of Eve, a mom anxious about her children, she lost both of her sons. She didn't just lose Abel, she lost both of her sons because now the devil clearly has Cain, and because of his sin, Cain is removed further away. So Eve lost both of them. Let's go back to the natural storyline. Let's read Genesis 4 again and make a couple of more observations from the natural storyline, adding the last couple verses. 
Beginning of verse 1, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore Abel. Now Abel was keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know him. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work in the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Listen to this mercy towards the wicked. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain kills Abel, righteous, and God says, I'm not going to let what you did to someone else be done to you. So the mark of Cain was, was mercy to the wicked. Proto-crucifixion. Don't try to steal that word. You know, I know y'all heard me say it first. It's recorded. <laughs> observations, natural storyline observations. These are clear observations. Notice the interaction between Cain and Adam is nearly identical after his sin. Almost identical. It's almost like they're almost the same scene, two different people. So immediately after the sin, God shows up. All right? Adam and Eve bite the fruit. God shows up. Adam, where are you? Immediately. Cain kills Abel. Immediately, God shows up. Where's your brother? Where's your brother? What's interesting, he gives both Adam and Cain an opportunity to humble themselves and and confess by asking them a similar question. God's not inquisitive. It's not an inquiring minds, right? God's not like, hey, where's, where's your brother? I thought he was. This is an opportunity. Same thing to Adam. Where are you? Like he knows Adam's not hiding, right? Some of the same punishment exists. Too, he says to Adam, because you have done this, curses the ground because of you. In 411, here's what he says. And now you are cursed from the ground. Similarities here. He tells, tells Adam, thorns and thistles it will produce from you, and from the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. He tells Cain, cursed, you're cursed on, from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your, your brother's blood. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Almost identical. Sin punishments, almost identical. Same conversation. 
God takes Adam and Eve, puts them out. You're banished from the garden. Cain, you will be a fugitive, banished from this area. Cain struggles. Struggles with it. Cain's attitude towards his punishment mirrors Adam's again. Remember when Adam was hiding and the Lord said, where are you? And Adam said, we heard your voice in the garden. And I was hiding because I was afraid. Because I hid myself. So I hid myself. Adam does not say, we're afraid because you said we'll die if we disobey you. So even though it was a direct disobedience, Adam is not at all thinking that that matters. He's more concerned with how he appears than what God actually says. He's not worried about dying. He's worried about being seen after he disobeyed God. Cain, listen to Cain's response. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Fam, you killed your brother. You killed him because his offering was better than yours. And your response to saying, you can't be around here anymore, this is more than I can bear. It's not this is just of you, God. I took my brother's life. There's no conviction of sin. There's no fear of God. No fear of God. Future scripture, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. What he's worried about is other people are going to see me and kill me. So, God, I'm not worried about you who created all things. I'm worried about these people, what they may do. You know what this is called biblically? Fear of man. I'm more worried about what they think than what you think. This is crazy. Can you imagine in this day and age watching a trial where someone brutally killed someone? They get sentenced to life, and they say, Judge, I think that's too harsh. <laughs> the boldness of this dude. It's funny because it's absurd. You can't bear this? That's natural storyline. It's just, you could, anyone could say this. Clear there. Natural. Supernatural lens. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Interesting statement. Sin is personified here. He says it's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is personified. It's not described as something that's necessarily within him. It sounds like it's something coming for you. 
It's crouching at the door. You must rule over it. This is a supernatural statement. Sin is being described, personified, because on one level it is a person. It's synonymous with the serpent. In the same way the serpent came and brought temptation that led to sin, he's personifying sin. It's a literary device to point us back to to, to sin crouching as equal to Satan, the serpent, coming after Adam and Eve. As was just said over here, like fathers, like sons. The personification of sin described here is synonymous with the serpent, who is the father of sin, the father of all lies. He is sin personified. I I remember at different times in my tenure as a pastor, people would ask questions like, and I think they were well-meaning, they would ask questions like, hey, can Satan repent? Like, could Satan be forgiven? They would ask those questions. Sometimes they come from, from children. But sometimes adults genuinely want to know, could Satan actually repent? Like, could God forgive Satan? It's one of those questions that you'll never get an answer to for two reasons. One, because the Bible doesn't say it's possible. But two, because this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. Satan is not going to be like, man, I was tripping all these years. Like, let me... Man, we should go back and just humble ourselves and ask God for forgiveness after doing all this. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And let me give you, let me, let me prove it. Let me give you some textual proof of this, right? I just not, it's not in my notes. This is just the law, right? But in Mark chapter 5, when the uh, legion, the, all those demons that are inside the man, right? I mean, this dude's like super strength, right? He's break, breaking off chains and all that, right? When Jesus sh- starts coming in that area, it says he saw Jesus from afar, and he ran up to Jesus and got on his knees. Remember what he said. What are you doing here, son of God? Have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? Right? So here are demons that understand there's a time where we're going to be done, and they accept that. When Jesus cast them out, you know what they were worried about? They weren't like, oh, please forgive us. We don't want to be destroyed. It was like, man, please don't take us from this area. Can we at least go into the pigs? And Jesus said, yeah, go ahead, because it wasn't his time to destroy them. And so a whole, was it 2,000 pigs ran into the water, all that good bacon. I know the farmer was offended, but when I read this story, I was offended personally. (laughs) All that bacon, gone. Wet, can't save it, pork chops, smothered in in mud water. (laughs) Satan is the personification of sin. He cannot and will not repent. They accept their inevitable destruction But until then, they want to take as many of you with them. And there are people in this room who are captured by Satan, and he's taking them with you. That's his goal. That's his goal. 
He accepts his destruction. You should not. He can't repent. He can't change. You can. Sin is personified because it's pointing back to the serpent. The story is insane. Let's look again at, at, at Cain's response, which I still think it blows my mind. Beginning in verse 13. This isn't funny, but to me it's like, man, Lord, you, you just accept a lot of stuff. Since Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Still amazing. If you don't look at this and see the amazing grace of God, I don't think you understand your Bibles. This is the first. This is the, he killed the righteous of the two. And God says, I'm not letting anybody kill you. In fact, I'm going to put a mark on you, lest anyone who find him should attack him. So I'm going to protect you, even though you sinned and you shed the blood of the righteous. Does anyone in here know that the blood of the righteous Jesus that was shed protects you? That's a different message today. I'm not going there today. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, most people, when they come to this section, here's the two questions, here's the two things they're worried about. Who are the people that Cain's worried about? Like, because the Bible only talks about Cain, who are the people? Where do they come from? People worry about that. As if the Bible was like, well, let me tell you, if I don't tell you it, then it didn't happen. It's like, that's not how it works. God's story is focused on a particular redemptive plot and theme. It's not about, let me explain to you, they also had these kids, and these, that's not how it worked, until he felt like it was necessary. The other thing that people want to know is, well, what's the mark? What's the mark of Cain? What is it? Good. Talk to me afterwards. I'm preaching. Save your comments till after. What was the mark? But that's not the point here. Supernaturally speaking, what we're seeing is the beginning of Satan's strategy. The strategy is to corrupt via copying. Satan now, the ruler of this world, will bring corruption to the world through copying what God is doing. And we're going to start seeing this throughout the rest of the Bible from here on out. His strategy is I'm going to corrupt the world by copying what God is doing. This is important to understand because this is the primary strategy of Satan. Let me give you some textual evidence in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 tell us this. And no wonder, let me give you context, Paul is talking about uh, people who are professing to be apostles of Christ and deceiving the Corinthians and other people, but he's saying they're not apostles of Christ. They're liars. So he's building this up. He's making this argument, and then he says this. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So listen to the language. He appears as an angel of light. Appears. He's copying being an angel of light. And the angel of light just means he's copying being righteous. It says his disciples disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They're copying, pretending to be righteous. This is his strategy. You see, Satan can't create, but he can imitate. You know, there are two ways that I think he appears as an angel of light. And we see this play out in our world today. The first is that good works... Righteousness, apart from God, earn you a good afterlife. I've been to many funerals where the person that passed away, unless he had a or she had a thief on the cross conversion, was not a believer. Was not. And everyone says they're in a better place. They're in a better place. Every time someone famous dies, despite how they lived, depending on the community, you hear rest in peace, or if they're a rapper, rest in power, if it's like a black type thing, rest in power, king. If you did not believe in Jesus in this life, if you do not and you die, there is no rest for you. There is no rest for you. The only way you get rest in the next life is if you rest in Jesus in this life. He is not understanding. There are no grandchildren. There are no, you only, you're a child of God or not. There are no cousins, nephews, uncles, nothing. If you are not a child of God, when you die, you regret every second you lived in this earth. Every second. I think all those hell testimonies that are on YouTube, I think they're real. People really saw those things. And I think that's the Lord warning people because the church is too busy worried about politics. So the Lord is warning people like, hey, this is real. I'm here and I'm giving individual people visions of what you're going to experience if you reject me. And keep in mind, if you believe in the Lord and walk the way, it will be worse for you. It will not be better because you trampled the son of God again, at least according to Hebrews. He appears as he, he makes good works seem like they earn people a good afterlife. So you've ever heard somebody say, like, well, why do I need to believe in Jesus? Like, I'm a good person. I do this. I do that. Well, how good is good enough? It depends on the standard. Depends on the standard. The other way that he appears as an angel of light is that he justifies bad works, making them appear as they're not that bad. They're kind of good, depending on the situation. He gives justification for bad works, and it seems like a good thing. And one of his main ones is vengeance, right? Vengeance is the main one. Someone hurts you, and you hurt them back. You take vengeance. You know, as a dad, when I watch movies about someone hurting their child and the son, the, the dad takes vengeance, man, my heart is with them. My heart is with them. I sin when I watch those movies. Because I'm thinking, kill him. Because in my mind, I think if you hurt my sons, that's the natural response, vengeance. 
But Jesus said, Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when you take vengeance, you are acting like Satan. You are acting like Cain taking vengeance on his brother. But it feels good. It doesn't seem that bad because you were hurt. It's justifiable. It seems like the righteous thing to do. And many people will agree with them. I would have done the same thing. Well, you might end up going to the same place. God is taking this serious. He makes bad works seem like they're not that bad. The other one, his greatest one, I think, is love. Is love. Man, is he so taken? God is love. God is love. Jesus is love. But he's made love this thing that says, hey, if you love a person, why not have sex with them? That's the natural expression of love. If you love, love is love. As long as you love the person, you can do whatever. It's love. As long as it's love, it's good. But God put parameters on love. So if love is love and you love the way Satan loves, you're not going to love where you end up. This is how he fools people. He appears as an angel of light. It's love. God is love. Yeah, but God's description and the parameters of love are different. But there's one other thing about this that I think is amazing. This is the power of our God. You notice that in most religions, and we would consider if you're a Christian, I believe, and I will state until the moment I take my last breath, that every other faith or religion is of the devil except Christianity. And if that rubs people the wrong way, I accept it. But you know the constant theme about religions, even these false religions, by cosmic, supernatural, evil beings, they all have a degree of righteousness to them. What religions do you know of that, are, that promote nothing but evil? Do you know even Satanism? You know what it promotes? It promotes the, the, the self, heathenism, like love yourself and do for yourself. You would think Satanism is like, go out and kill all people, you know? Like serial killers come out of the church, like, where are they at, you know? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Satan has to work through good works. You know why? Because God created humans in his image, and when he breathed in that breath of life, all humanity has the desire to some degree to do good. So Satan, even as evil as he is, can't even present a religion that's evil. He has to work through good because God is good and God created humanity. And that's why he has to use a fake good to convince people because he can't be utterly evil because all people are made in the image of God. God's stamp is still on humanity. So Satan, you still got to work in the confines of God's righteousness. You still submit to the confines of God's righteousness. It's crazy. I remember watching a, a lesbian couple talk, and one of them said they were the male and the female in a relationship. And I thought, wow, look at this. Even though they're rebelling God's standards, they still submit to the gender structure. One's calling themselves a male and one's a female the way God created it. He can't escape. He has to submit to the confines of goodness. And so what he does is he copies it. He says, I'm going to present a good apart from God instead of because of God. 
Copying corrupt is the strategy of the enemy. We see this even in the mark of Cain. What is the mark of Cain? It's a sign of God's claim on Cain despite his sin. It's a mark of mercy. It's telling that Cain's mark is warning people not to sin. But Satan copies that and we get the mark of the beast. And that mark, that mark is a mark of Satan's claim on people that you have to sin in order to just eat and buy food. And he copies across the boardwalk. You see the beginning of this starts to develop. Now, I said at the beginning of the message that that verses 17 through 532 are pretty much just genealogies with a brief narrative. But I want to look at now the similarities in the names. Now, I don't know who was born first in some of these, but there's some copying going on. Now, I don't have time to read all the names, but I just want to give you the ones that are similar. In the natural storyline, this is the genealogies of the righteous and unrighteous. Genesis 4, 17 to 24 is the unrighteous line of Cain, and Genesis 5, 1 through 32 is the righteous line of Seth. After, after God gives Eve another son named Seth, Cain and them are moved away. They're far away from where Seth and his people are. So you see these two developing family lines. The line of Cain is far away to the east. It's evil. And Seth, it's near Adam and Eve, closer to the Garden of Eden. But you see in, now again, I don't know who's in charge of baby names around there. But when you look at 417, now you see Enoch. This is Cain's first son, Enoch, firstborn. But then in 524, it tells us, 522, that Enoch walked with God. So here's 521. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. But there's an Enoch in Cain's evil line, but an Enoch in Seth's. You got Methusael in 418. Here's what it says. To Enoch, so Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Methujael, and Methujael fathered Methushael. I think David was just like, hey, just switch it up a little bit. Add us <laughs> you get Methusael, right? But then you get 521, very similar. You get this. When Enoch had 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, right? Look at the spelling. Methusael and Methuselah. It's, just, it's basically like the soul train thing where you just switch it around and those names are there. But guess what? Both fathered sons named Lamech. They both fathered sons named Lamech. Lamech on Cain's side, the story focuses on, he's the first to marry two women. And it talks about his wives and then his daughter that comes from that. Cain kills a man and he boasts about it. First gangster rap. Right? But Lamech on Seth's side focuses on redemption. Lamech is Noah's dad. Noah's dad. And Noah is essentially named, what that means is the reversal of the curse. Now, it's not, now I don't think he knew that there was going to be a flood, but he named him Noah prophetically describing him as a reversal of the curse. 
That's the natural line. In closing, here's the supernatural storyline of these names and these two different families that have the same names, especially not just the same names, but the same names in important distinctions. These two families have been separated by distance, and we must be aware of two realities. While these two family lines are different, one evil and one righteous, at some point they merge to become one. Genesis 6-5 tells us this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Not the wickedness of the line of Cain, but the wickedness of man. And that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. So you got two different family lines, one wicked, one righteous, identical names that eventually become all evil. So the reality of their having the same names is indicative that they will be the same person. They will commit the same sins. They will be the same in sinfulness. At some point, they merge into one. The second thing we must be aware of is that the seed, the righteous seed that could destroy Satan, that will, is now in Seth, and it's gotten too big. There's too many he's for Satan to watch and kill off the righteous bloodline. He can't do it. It's too much. He needs help. And this is where the sons of God in Genesis 6 come in to play. He can't do it alone. He cannot destroy the bloodline alone. He needs help. And so he gets recruits in Genesis 6. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Now, lastly, how does this message relate to us? How do we apply what we've heard today? Sin is crouching at our door and is waiting to master us. It's there. The other thing that we must be aware of is that in many cases, our sin is not that bad to us because we justify why we do it. We justify why we do it. And here's how. We do exactly what Cain did. In essence, you know what Cain's real issue was? It was comparison. He compared himself to his brother. God chose his brother, and he got offended. We compare ourselves to others instead of God often. In fact, comparison is a derivative of fear of man. All sins towards other people connect to fear of man. And not fear in the sense that we're afraid of them, but fear in the sense that I care more about what they think and what they do than what God thinks. 
So even though God says put away slander, bitterness, rivalry, deceit, gossip, we will do those things. Why? Because we care more about what they've done than what God has done. We compare ourselves to others. In marriages, many of the conflicts that happen are due to simple comparisons. Your spouse is not like you. You get bitter and offended and you hold on to it. And you don't think and don't care that God says, put away bitterness. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will God forgive you yours. I know many Christians who are trapped in bitterness and some of them think that it's good because they've been hurt or they're disappointed. And while it's understandable, it's unacceptable biblically. But it's justifiable. We don't think it's that bad. You know, the wild thing is if I compare myself to you, I will always find something that I'm better than you at. I will always find a way that you're more sinful than me. Always. And I will always win. But if I compare myself to the scriptures or to Jesus, I will always find some areas I need to grow in. And if anyone is going to grow as a Christian, you have to stop comparing yourself to other people and compare yourself to the scriptures, to the Lord. So that you can find places where you need to grow. Some of us are stuck because we compare ourselves to other people or compare ourselves to our former selves. Well, I don't do that anymore. So it's like, but that's the goal is it? Well, I don't do that anymore. The goal is I want to do what he does as much as close as possible until he calls me home to stand before him. There's so much comparison and self-righteousness and judgment because you're always going to be better than someone. They always do it not as good as you all the time. And that gives you the, the, the Luke 18 Pharisee and tax collector perspective. I'm glad I'm not like them. And it's all, it's all resolves around fair as man because you care more about what they're doing, what they've done to you, than what God did and what he's done for you. This is why this relates. Because we can easily walk in, walk in the sign of Cain. And what happens when you compare a lot, you lose sight of what sin is. You understand it intellectually, but you don't understand it functionally. So you can say, well, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, because this is what I mean, because you can say that the person who sinned against you is wrong. And you can drop down menu everything they've said and done, what they were wearing, what they smelled like, what time it was, what the weather was like, where you were going, what you ate later. You'll know all of that, but when it comes to your sin, there's no drop-down menu. So you intellectually can relate to sin because it happened to you, but you don't functionally relate that you've done it to others. And this is how we get deceived, and we think it's just not that bad. But that's angel of light. That's not biblical. This relates to us because we have to remember the story, sin is crouching at our door. And we compare ourselves to others 
and it justifies our, our sin against them. And the whole time, we're not even worried about what does God think, just like Cain. We're more worried about what's happening to us. Yeah, but they offended me. They said this. They betrayed me. They did this. They did that. Obeying you is too much. I can't do it. I'm hurt. So Jesus being hurt is less significant than us being hurt, is what we're saying. If you think this doesn't apply to you, then either I'm doing a bad job, you're hardening your heart, but you don't understand the story of redemption. And I'm biased, but I don't think I'm doing a bad job. <laughs> this applies to us, brothers and sisters, today. This isn't a 5,000-year-old story. This is a 5,000-year-old gut check. For his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just giving us a clarification in your word and helping us understand, yeah, there's a natural way that these stories play out, but there's more going on behind the scenes. We are total pulling back the curtain of the Wizard of Oz and seeing what's happening. And I thank you for that. Lord, I pray where I am accurate in what I'm saying, that you would impress it upon our hearts, have us believe it and find ways to apply it. Lord, where I wasn't accurate, where I was off, then may we forget it because it has no lasting reality. But whatever's true for everyone who is here, may that truth burn in our hearts. And not just right now, but may we learn how to remember what was said, remember the conviction you give us, and think about, meditate on what we should do in, in light of it. It we're, it we're so easily manipulated by our perspective that our lives should not have any kind of disruption, that when it does, Lord, we just get hurt. We get sad. We get offended. We, and then we, we don't even realize that we care more about what happened to us than what you said and did for us. We focus more on what people did to us than what you did for us. And in that, we're no different than Cain, comparing ourselves to other people, angry at what they've done, we would never do to them what they did to us, we tell ourselves, not even realizing that we've done way more things to you than they've ever done to us. Lord, help our sensitivity in that area grow so that we can take your word like do not repay evil for evil, that we can put away the particular attitudes and actions that come out of the derivative of fear of man. Help us to focus more on what you've done. And that doesn't make it easy. It's not like it's all of a sudden because I said it, it's just going to. No, it's difficult, but it's, it's necessary work. Help us to not make excuses and not minimize what we've done like Cain. This is too hard for me. I'm too hurt. I'm too. No. You hurt to help us. So take the horror that's in our perspective and help us to focus on the hope that's in Jesus. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, just a reminder that if you have questions that you'd like to text in to be answered 
This morning, the number is 240-623-8076. Remember that after our Q&A, we will do communion. Um, so if you have not gotten those elements, please uh, do so now. And I'm making these couple of announcements because we only have a few questions that I don't think were answered. Some of the questions that were submitted were answered during the sermon. Um, others were not. But um, please, uh, women, note that you have your prayer meeting at 1230 in the double classroom and in the women's chat at Tammy's at 130. If you haven't signed up, please see her before you leave and as soon as possible. So here are the questions that we have right now that were not answered. Um, how, this question is, how did Eve give birth to both a son of God and Abel and a son of Satan and Cain? Well, it's, it's, she just gave birth to two sons. So the, it, it wasn't the son of God, son of, it's more figurative language and it more deals with the morality of the person. So when you're unrighteous, you're of the devil. When you're righteous, you're of God, right? So it's a figurative, not literal statement that Eve is, I mean, the Bible would say that Cain, right, in 1 John 3, is of the evil one, right? And remember that God said, you will have offspring. You will have offspring. Satan will, and his offspring will be at odds with Eve's offspring, who would be Jesus, right? So it's more figurative language describing that when you are sinful or reject Jesus or whatever, that you belong to the devil. Remember in John 8, I, I, I personally love these interactions, but when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he said, they said, our father was Abraham. And he said, your father is the devil. <laughs> you are children of the devil. Now you got to keep in mind, like we know him as Jesus. So we think, yeah, of course. But like in that day and age, they didn't know who Jesus was. This was just a dude who came out of nowhere who was boldly challenging all of the godly teachers of the day that no one would ever dare challenge like that. And Jesus was saying, your father is of the, your father is the devil. So again, in, in, in that, there's a, like, and here's a distinction. Remember when it said, uh, when Jesus, when Peter said, no, Lord, you won't be crucified. And he said, get behind me, Satan, Right. He wasn't saying that Peter is of Satan, but that his thinking is satanic. So from God's perspective, it's not, we put a lot of color on and it's real black and white for the Lord. You judge a tree by the fruit that he bears, by that it bears. If you are of God, you will, you will live righteously. First John 3, no one that is born of God will continue sinning. Now it doesn't, it says continue practicing. Doesn't mean we won't stumble, but you will think about sin differently. You will feel convicted when you do it, and you will not want to stay in that place. If you do not have that type of reality, then 1 John 5, 3 where says his commands are not burdensome. When those commands become burdensome, it's because you don't belong to him. So it's figurative language about the morality and the motive in the heart of people. Thank you. Can you, yes, um, the next question is, can you talk about how Cain or ancient people would know how to honor the Lord? You know, so in 4-7, when it talks about if you do well and you must rule over sin, you know, how would Cain know what doing well is um, at this point? In time? That's a good question. I think presumably his parents. I mean, like, it wasn't like, 
they bit from the tree and now that they're just evil and hate the Lord, like they were that I think this is what I believe. Because God sacrificed took animal skins and clothed Adam and Eve, I think in their minds that began the sort of sacrificing to God as an expression and the giving to God as an expression of we believe in you, we trust you. So I think that they were just instructed by their parents. I don't think Adam and Eve became like Satan after they bit the fruit. They just were now had sinful disposition. And so they would have trained their kids to know like the Lord exists. And we see from the from the actual narrative, Cain is talking to God. So there's a, already a functioning. So for all we know, God could have made it clear like, hey, this is, you know, do this to honor me. Or they thought based on my relationship with God, this is what we're going to do. So, again, the Bible doesn't, is not concerned with explaining every detail. It's like some of it is just like, hey, you know, he's had us think about it, you know, kind of, kind of assume certain things, I think is a fair case. So I would say that it probably came from Adam and Eve, but also they had a direct relationship with God, clearly. Um, in the text it says that Abel's blood cried out to the Lord. Could you elaborate on what that means? Yeah, I think that's just, so, so this is the thing, like, God, because he knows everything, the way he talks to us, it kind of it kind of varies in different ways. Right. Sometimes God talks to us based on his understanding of the world and he'll make statements from his vantage point. And that's when we be like, OK, we see things a little differently. Right. Like Jesus, you have heard it was said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you are angry at your brother. So, you know, so he's, he's clarifying like. But then God also speaks to us in languages that we understand. And sometimes it uses terminology that is called like anthropomorphisms, where God will describe like a, like a mother hen hugs her children, I love you. Like God isn't a mother hen, right? The long arm of the Lord. I don't think it meant like, man, his arm is real long, right? It's just giving, right? It's just giving us an illustration that we can relate to to help us understand what God is saying. Right. So that that's what. So when that language, his blood crying out from the ground is just, you know, uh, a symbolism that says that. Well, this is well. here's the interesting part. Let's go here for a second. His blood crying out from the ground. Right. He's righteous. It's basically saying the righteous still live. Right. So the righteous still live. His blood's crying out from the ground. And God is acknowledging. I know you killed him, essentially. I hear him. He's with, he's wherever I've placed people after they die. Like God is acknowledging that his blood is crying out is symbolism that I think means one, the righteous still speak. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of the living. These people aren't dead. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. I'm the God of the living. Then you see this in Revelation in the sixth seal. These people in heaven are martyrs are crying out for justice. Like this, that's a crazy scene. When you think about they're in heaven, they see Jesus, they see the beauty of everything, and they're still asking God, when are you going to take judgment, vengeance on the people who killed us on earth? In the presence of God, they're fully aware of what happened on earth, and they want justice. It's funny how we get mad at people for wanting justice down here, but that's a different conversation. So the sim it's, it's symbolic language for just saying that, one, Abel's dead in a sense, but the righteous aren't really dead. And that he, God knows he's, he's, he knows what happened. It's a symbolic way to say 
Abel told me what happened. He's telling me what happens. His blood's crying out. His blood that you killed. That's what he's saying. All right. Um, four more questions. So uh, if you haven't, if one of these isn't your questions and you need to talk to Pastor Kurt, please feel free to do so. Um, this question says, previously you talked about how Satan went against the natural order by talking to the serpent before Eve and Adam. Why is God going to Cain about Abel without going to Adam and Eve, um, not going against the natural order of parents and children? Well, because I, I, don't, I think what God was doing in that moment when he, was, when he talked to Adam was God created Adam, gave Adam the law, and that was the natural reality for what God established. So God is dealing with it based on the natural order of who's responsible, right, in terms of creation. Adam was created and was given the law to not eat from the tree. So he's staying with the natural order of creation, even though Satan went opposite. But once you get to Adam and uh, Cain and Abel, the story is, is now moving from just them to like how humanity develops in their relationship with God. So it's not like, hey, Adam, why did Cain do this? That's not necessary in the same sense where in the situation with Adam, Adam was the one directly responsible. So it wasn't just that he was undoing, uh, he was doing the natural order. It was Adam was actually responsible because Eve wasn't created, at least from the narrative that we get in Genesis 2, Eve was not created when God told Adam not to eat from the tree. So presumably Adam told her that, and it was his responsibility to not let that happen because he was dead, right? So in this scene, Adam is not responsible for Cain's sin. He's Cain's dad, but he's not responsible for his sin. In the same way that even though my three boys are under my responsibility, if they do something, that's what they did. They've done that. They're still my sons, but they're responsible for it. If they break the law, they might go to juvie. They're not going to send me to juvie, right? So it's, the, so it's just at this point in the narrative, it's God is dealing with the natural. Is you're responsible. Who's responsible? Cain was obviously responsible for killing his brother. Thank you. Um, is there a parallel between Adam and Eve's self-choice of covering themselves with plants and God then replacing it with his choice of animal skins and Cain's accept unacceptable offering of plants versus Abel's offering of animals? So what's the first part of the question? Is there, is there a parallel between Adam and Eve's self-covering with the plants, God replacing it with you know, animal skins, and Cain's offering of plants versus Abel's offering of animals? I don't know. I'm, I'm not aware of that. I like that type of stuff, though. That's the type of stuff I would be like, look, I can't prove it, but let me just say it because I like the connection. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't know. I think it was Cain. So Cain and Abel were just given two different responsibilities, right? So Cain, you know, has the plants, and then I think Abel has the sheep. He's the farmer, and so it's really just, he's just giving of what, out of his responsibility. I don't know if there's a correlation between the fig leaves and him working the ground, but I like, that's, ty that's the type of stuff you that would be in a commentary. You'd be like, oh, okay. You know, I like that type of thinking because it doesn't contradict what the Bible does say, but I wouldn't say like, that's why it happened. I just think that, I don't know why Cain's responsibilities were the ground. I would imagine that because Cain was the firstborn, I don't know how far apart they are. I would imagine that 
Because remember, Adam's curse was curses the ground because of you, right? It's going to be difficult. So when he has a son, it's like, man, I've been waiting for you to be able to grow up. I need some help cutting that grass. I mean, listen, I got three sons. I'm glad they older. People be like, oh, I wish they were young. Nah, help your mother carry them groceries. Can y'all put the dishes away? Clean the bathroom up. We got people coming over. It used to be Bessie had to do it, or I got to do it. While they sitting there playing. It's like now, hey, mommy's outside. Bring all them groceries in. The ones that's heavy, I'll get. You know, so... Again, I just think Cain was, Adam was probably like, hey, look, man, help your dad with this field, man. It's tired of being sweating and all that, man. You eat good, man. Now you, you, you six, carry this, you know, whatever. <laughs> you six years old now, carry this bale of hay. Like, you're going to put some work, you know, you're going to put some respect on my name, you know. So I, I just think it was, he was given that responsibility because that was what was available. And then when Abel came, it was like, okay, now there's, there's animals and you take care of the animals. You know, stuff like that. So I, I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but, but I do like that kind of thinking, though. I appreciate that type of, that type of thought. So in, in Jude, um, as you were reading, it mentioned uh, Korah. So someone's asking, uh, who is Korah and of Korah's re rebellion? Not today. <laughs> not today. Okay. Not today. We'll talk about it, but not today. Okay. I also skipped something else that I said in the previous message, a giant catch. But not today. I'm a, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. So the last question is, can you clarify? You mentioned, uh, you know, evaluating ourselves based on, like, whether or not God's commandments are burdensome. So someone wanted to know, can you clarify burdensome in relation to obeying God? I think burdensome commands are when they're too difficult to obey. When a, when a commandment of God is too difficult to obey, it's burdensome. And my impression from the scriptures is that when you're a believer with the spirit of God in you, it's not too burdensome. It's the difference between I have to do this and I, and I, and I want to do this. I get to obey God. I think, it, I think, don't get me wrong, all of us have struggles that are harder than others. But it's like, and it's not one issue. You might be thinking of one issue. It's just in whole. Like the Bible, James said this. We're going to do James after this series. James said this, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all, right? So they're not awesome, but we compartmentalize it. All right, I'm working on this. And I, but in general, most of us who are believers, even, so I got to work on self-control. That's my thing. Self-control, gentleness, those things, right? But that doesn't mean like, okay, I can do everything else because I'm focusing here, right? That's not how it works. When you're a Christian, even though you may be isolating a particular area, you're still obeying, in a general sense, the commands of God because you love them. But when the commands are burdensome, you just don't feel like doing them. You make excuses for doing them. You justify your sinfulness. And then you sometimes get to the point where you think God is okay with that because you think it's too difficult to obey him. And that will never be true. It's only be true in, in your perspective. So. so the burdensome is really more just... That's 1 John 5, 3, by the way. But it's connected to what he was saying about sin, even in 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue practicing sinning. So if you get to fight, if the commands are burdensome and you cannot resist that, then it's, a, it's quite possible, I would say, if I'm being honest, then you don't belong to the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't struggle, but I'm talking about in the totality of your life, not like one area. Every one of us have a couple areas where it's like, man, this joint is literally a thorn in my flesh. 
but you but you grieve, you fall forward, right? You still are trying to honor the Lord. It's not like you're just giving up, but some areas are just harder for us for us than others. And God understands that. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot um, disown himself. So, so we're talking about, we're talking about, but he says, if you deny him, he will deny us, right? So the burdensome commands are people that eventually deny, or deny God. I don't want this too much for me. I don't want to give this up. I, don't want, I mean, I've talked to people. I don't want to give this up. All right? Okay? I'm not magic. I can't make you do anything. I can't give you a conviction of sin. I can just help you build on it, make connections for you so that you see it. But okay, if you don't want to give that up, then that's, you know, I also didn't die on the cross for you, and I'm not going to be the one who ultimately judges you. That's kind of what that means. So fantastic questions. That's good. That's a wrap? All right. Sure. You got an announcement? All right. Well, let's do, let's do our rightful responsibility here. Let's remember what we gather together for, what this supernatural storyline leads to. Let's, let's, we talked about the, pr- the proto-crucifixium, right? I'm telling you, you're going to hear that word more and be like, hey, my pastor said that first. And if you don't defend me and give me credit, there's another church you should have to <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sort of. But we talked about the proto-crucifixion, the first, you know, gospel, the first crucifixion. Now we zoom to the actual scene. We remember what Jesus said. We remember what Jesus did. And we share this together. And this is the only part of our Sunday service that is reserved for people who do believe in the Lord. Paul said it clear in 1 Corinthians that if you, if you take this and you don't believe in the Lord, you bring judgment on yourself from God. So these aren't our words. We don't want people to do that. We want people to do this when they believe because you're actually remembering what Jesus did. And when he told his disciples, remember what I've done for you. Take this bread. It's, it's, it, my body was broken. This blood is the blood of the covenant. He was saying this is for people who not just remember the act, but remember it because we live our lives in light of it. So if that's you this morning, then we're going to take this together for God's glory as we looked at the proto-crucifixion, now we zoom in on the actual crucifixion itself, and we remember and thank God for this. So, Lord, we thank you for that you, your blood that was shed, your righteous blood that was shed, that it forgave the wicked, showed mercy to the wicked. And even though, as far as we know, Cain didn't repent or live in a way that that, but it was the, it was the proto it was sort of the, the, that would be later fulfilled where the wicked would be people like us who, because of your blood being shed, receive the mercy. And we take that mercy and we try to live merciful in light of you. So we eat this together, Lord, for your glory and our good. And Lord, this juice represents to us the same moment, the same crucifixion that your blood was being shed for our sins. May we drink this together in memory of you. Lord, and again, I, I ask that you would give each of us the kind of conviction that we need 
It's easy to listen to this and in the moment, maybe feel convicted, maybe feel bad, feel sorrow. But this isn't where we, we live conviction. This is where we experience it. But Lord, it's when we leave, when we're hours and days away from the moment that we may have felt some type of conviction. That's when it's easy, when the enemy helps us to justify not submitting to that conviction. That makes excuses for why we shouldn't obey or, or change the things that we felt that we needed to change when we were convicted. We start to back away from the confidence of that conviction. I pray that you would help us to not be stuck in that pattern of just thinking that I agree. Because, Lord, when we agree but don't do anything, it's just worldly sorrow. It's condemnation. We feel bad, but we feel better when we don't feel bad anymore. But conviction feels bad but does better because Christ died for us. We don't walk with our heads down like woe is us. We learn from what's happening and we create particular plans to go against it. We, con we continue to renew our minds. We don't lose our minds. So I pray, Lord, that you would be with all of us. And if there are anyone who doesn't believe, Lord, my words do not have the power. My illustrations, my personality, my stories, my humor, it does not have the ability to change or save anyone. But Lord, I pray that since you gave me this responsibility, that you would use what was said to change someone's heart, to bring them to the point where they need you. And if that's anyone in this room, Lord, give them the courage to not shy away from this moment. Have them talk to myself or Mike or anyone about what does it mean to believe in you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, before you leave, Mike has an announcement. Just wanted to let everybody know. Some of us may not know this, but uh, our brother Jeffrey Palmer asked uh, his friend, Laura Castillo, Shane for his friend no more. In marriage. And she said yes. Yeah. Jeff and Laura, stand up, please. Jeff and Laura, stand up. Yay! <laughs> yes. Excited for that? Listen, do not compare yourself to them. <laughs> Don't do it. All right, uh, we'll see you when we see you this week. Don't forget, oh, game night has changed to March 3rd. So it'll be on March 3rd, so don't, it'll be in the calendar. And if you, all the updates from last Wednesday, the new groups and all that stuff will be in the app and you'll get an email by Tuesday with a summarization of everything that happened last meeting. Having said that, love you guys. Thank you. Go with God.